I invite you to turn in the Book of Forms and Prayers, or in the Trinity Psalter Hymnal to the Canons of Dort, third and fourth head of doctrine, articles 7 and 8. You'll find that on page 907 in the Trinity Psalter Hymnal, and 272 in the Book of Forms and Prayers. Article 7, God's Freedom in Revealing the Gospel. In the Old Testament, God revealed the secret of His will to a small number. In the New Testament, now without any distinction between peoples, He discloses it to a large number. The reason for this difference must not be ascribed to the greater worth of one nation over another or to a better use of the light of nature but to the free good pleasure and undeserved love of God. Therefore, those who receive so much grace beyond and in spite of all they deserve ought to acknowledge it with humble and thankful hearts. On the other hand, with the apostle they ought to adore, but certainly not, but certainly not inquisitively search into the severity and justice of God's judgments on the others who do not receive this grace." Article 8, the serious call of the gospel. Nevertheless, all who are called through the gospel are called seriously. For seriously and most genuinely, God makes known in His Word what is pleasing to Him, that those who are called should come to Him. Seriously, He also promises rest for their souls and eternal life to all who come to Him and believe. That's the reading of the Catechism, or Confession. Let's uh, turn to the Word of God, to uh, the book of Timothy, the letter of Paul to Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, and I'll read the first seven verses. One Timothy two, beginning verse one. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Last Lord's Day, as we were looking at the Word of God in Ephesians 4, we notice that the devastation of the fall has rendered a universal dilemma. All humanity, because of the fall into sin of our first parent, Adam, at the instigation of the devil, 
all humanity has now become ruined by the fall. And this ruination continues from generation to generation because Adam was our federal head, and in Adam's fall, we sinned all. So there is no one righteous, not even one. And this universal devastation evidences itself in a variety of ways in the life of the unbeliever, the pagan. His mind is futile. His understanding is darkened. He has been alienated from the life of God. His heart has become hardened because of the ignorance that is in them. And this hard heart, which has rejected God and His Word, evidences itself in a life of callousness and rampant debauchery and ever-increasing wickedness, so that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if God were to deal with each one as they deserve, there could only be the expectation of judgment. It is a universal disaster. But in the passage that we read this evening, we come across some universal statements. Paul encourages Timothy to pray for all people. That's in verse 1. Paul says in verse 3 and 4 that God our Savior desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And he tells us in verse 6 that our Lord Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all people. And then in verse 7, Paul says that he has been appointed as an ambassador of Christ for all people, both Jew and Gentile. And so you have these universal statements of the Apostle Paul expressing God's universal desire for the salvation of all and expressing that Christ has given himself as a ransom for all. But how are we to understand these all statements, particularly the middle two regarding God's desire and Christ's giving his life as a ransom for all? How are we to understand those in light of what we know in the rest of the Bible? For instance, it, it says that God desires the salvation of all people, and yet we know from the Word of God that not all people are saved. In fact, it was our Lord Jesus who perhaps with more pointedness than any other writer of the Scripture or person within the Scriptures testified to the reality that there is a heaven and there is a hell. There is a broad road that leads to destruction and many are on it. And there's a narrow road that leads to eternal life and few there be that travel it. There is a place of darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth and there is a place where those who uh, attend are welcomed into the joy of the Lord. There is a heaven and there is a hell. And it is clear from the Scriptures that not everyone will enjoy the favor and the presence of God for all eternity. That some indeed will be separated from the presence of God's love and experience His judgment forever. So how do we understand the desire of God for all to be saved. And then to make the point a little more challenging, it's not just 
that we know that not all are going to be saved, that some will be under God's judgment eternally. But we also believe from the Scriptures that God has actually chosen only some to inherit eternal life and to be the recipients of His saving grace. That from before the foundation of the world, God has elected His own, has chosen out of the whole human race some and has given those to His Son. Remember how the Lord Jesus, particularly in John's Gospel, speaks about those whom you have given me. They were yours, and you have given them to me. So that these elect, the ones that God has chosen and He has given to His Son, it is these and only these who will inherit eternal life and enjoy the eternal favor of God. So how do we square Paul's statements, these all, these universal statements, God desires all to be saved. And Christ gave Himself as a ransom for all. How do we understand that in light of what the other Scriptures say? And it is important for us to understand Scriptures in light of one another. We believe that God is the author of the whole of Scriptures, that though He used certain individuals over the history of the world, over thousands of years, to write the Scriptures so that we have Paul and Mark and John and Isaiah and, and Moses. Yet there is one author, and God is true and can never contradict Himself. And so it's always a struggle for us and a necessary struggle to understand what is said in some Scripture to line up with what is said in another Scripture and all the while not miss the point of emphasis in any particular passage of God's Word. So, how do we understand what the Apostle Paul says there in verses 3 and 4? We're told to pray for all, and he says, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. How do we understand this all, this desire of God that all people will be saved? It's important to know that the all there expresses the love of God for sinners, as sinners. It expresses His generosity to all people, even to rebels. It's true that God has a particular love and favor for His elect, but it is also true that God has a love for all people, and His compassion flows to all, and He desires that all of them be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And so what the Apostle Paul says here is, is what he learned from other passages of Scripture. Take, for instance, what the Lord says in Ezekiel 33, verse 11. As I live, declares the Lord God. Listen to this. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? There you have in a very passionate expression of God. We know that God will put the wicked in hell if they do not repent. But it's God's express statement that He has no desire, no pleasure 
in the death of the wicked. Or think about what he says earlier in Ezekiel's prophecy. In Ezekiel 18, verse 23 here, God asks a question. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God. What's the answer? Does God have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Though we know that He punishes the wicked, does He have any pleasure in that? And not rather that He should turn from His way and live. So this is God's express statement that He desires that all people would turn away from their wickedness, would repent of their sin, would come to Him for mercy, would put their faith in Jesus Christ, would come to a knowledge of the gospel, and thereby be saved. That is, God has a heart of compassion towards rebel sinners. He's not cold and metallic and untouched by their wickedness. He knows the plight that they are uh, uh, waiting for. He knows the trajectory that they're on an eternity under His wrath and curse, and His heart goes out in compassion to them. Remember what our Lord Jesus said in John 3, verse 16, that God so loved the world, the rebellious, wicked world, which turned against Him and refuses to turn to Him. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And who can forget that scene full of pathos as our Lord, before He goes to the cross, is overlooking the city of Jerusalem, a city that had rejected Him, that had plotted His destruction, that refused to submit to Him and to receive Him and accept Him as the promised Messiah. He cries, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you under my wings as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. He weeps knowing that their refusal brings upon them the judgment of God. And if we have seen the Son, Jesus says, we have seen the Father. And if Jesus desires the salvation of a Jerusalem that is about to put Him on the cross, then we can understand what Paul is saying here, that God our Savior desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But you say, if He desires it, why doesn't He save everyone? It's not a problem of His power. He could do that if He so wished. It's not simply a matter of justice because if we're talking about strict justice, then no one would be saved, and we know He saves some. So, so if God desires the salvation of the wicked, why doesn't He save all the wicked? That's a valid question. And perhaps the answer to that question might not be that satisfying. But we know that God has His reasons not to save all people. And those reasons in no way undermine or take away the reality of His compassion for them. He desires them to be saved even if He doesn't, in the end, will them to be saved. 
I was reading in uh, a theologian, uh, Dabney, Robert Dabney, a southern theologian from the 1800s this past week, and uh, he gave an illustration of this. He refers to uh, George Washington, whom we all know, and uh, this is uh, in the time of the Revolutionary War where the American colonies rebelled against uh, their king, George III. And throughout the course of that war, there was a major, Andre, who had done something treasonous. Dabney doesn't tell us what it is, but he had done something treasonous so bad that it warranted the death penalty. And so since uh, George Washington, the general, had power over life and death, a sheet of paper was given to him to to sign the death warrant of Major Andre. And uh, George Washington was very fond of this man, liked him, wished that he could set him free, but he signed the death warrant anyway. And if you had said to George Washington, if you had any compassion for the man, you would have set him free, he would have said, no, I have compassion for the man. I love him. I wish I could set him free, but there are higher reasons why I must sign this death warrant, reasons of wisdom and of patriotism and of the safety of the nation, and he signed it away. And Dabney says, now that's an illustration. Of course, illustrations can only be as useful as they are because we're considering someone who is infinite like God, comparing him to someone who is finite like George Washington. But he says the point is that God may have compassion for all sinners, and he does because the Scriptures clearly demonstrate that he does. And yet he has reasons in himself, wise reasons, reasons that if we understood would make complete sense, reasons that promote his own glory. He has reasons within himself why this desire does not evidence itself in reality, that though he has compassion for sinners and desires that they all be saved, yet in his wisdom and for his own glory, he can still condemn them to hell if they reject the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it does express the heart of compassion that is in our God. So that's how you deal with that all. But what about this other all that we read about in verse 5 and 6 where we read there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Now, this is a bit of a conundrum, because if you follow it through, it seems like the apostle is teaching universalism, that all people are saved, because he says that Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. And we know that universalism isn't what the Bible teaches, that there are those who will enjoy life forevermore, and others who will not. So how do we follow this through? What Jesus, what is said about our Lord, that he gave himself as a ransom for all. One of the things that you need to understand is that uh, all in the Bible, and even in our uh, everyday speech, 
All does not always mean all. It doesn't always mean every individual as a part of the group. And I say we talk like that too. If there's a, an event in the city of Lethbridge, say the whoop-up days, and, and it's crowded there, you might read in the newspaper the next day, all of Lethbridge celebrates whoop-up days. Well, you know that's not literally true. They're not each and every Lethbridgian was there enjoying whoop-up days. But it does mean that there's a lot of people who enjoyed uh, the whoop-up days. And so here, when we come to this passage, when it, when it says that Christ gave Himself as a ransom for all, we know it cannot mean that He gave Himself as a ransom for each individual in the world. Because had He done so, then each individual in the world would be ransomed, would be saved. Because this, this language of ransom, I'm sure you know, uh, refers to the payment of a price to release someone from captivity. And here the payment of the price is Christ Himself. He gave Himself as a substitute ransom so that those who were under the judgment of God might be free from the captivity of that judgment, free from the judgment and curse of the law, and enjoy liberty and acceptance before God. And so if Christ had given himself as a ransom for all, then everyone would enjoy the freedom that he had purchased by his death. If he's a substitute for everyone, then everyone would be saved. And we know that's not true. So all does not always mean each and every person. So then again, how are we to understand this? This Christ gave Himself as a ransom for all. Well, we understand it in the same way that we understand all the universalistic statements regarding the work of Christ in Scripture. For instance, uh, John the Baptist, when he saw the Lord Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Or think about what uh, the Samaritans did when they had come to know Jesus Christ, the witness of the Samaritan woman. This is the Savior of the world, they said. Or think about what Paul says here in 1 Timothy 2, uh, verse 5. There is one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus, the man. Or think about the one that Peter, or that John speaks about it. In 1 John 2, my little children, I write these things to you so that you may not sin, but, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one, who is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Does that mean that Christ has taken upon Himself the wrath that all humanity deserves? If so, then all humanity would be free from the wrath of God and would joy life in the presence of God forever. It doesn't mean that. All does not always mean each individual within the group. So then what does it express? Well, it expresses this, that God's heart is that all would be saved and that the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, His payment for sin, 
is sufficient for everyone who comes to Him in faith. That God is not stingy. He's not tight-fisted. He doesn't just do enough. But there's an overwhelming supply of grace so that the vilest offender, so that the maximum number of vilest offenders who truly believe will find in Jesus Christ a cleansing for sin and a payment price that would rescue them from the wrath and curse of God. It expresses, again, the generosity of God, that not only does He desire that all be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, but that all who come to the knowledge of the truth will find that there is a payment price for their sins. So it's not ever that God offers salvation to all, and then if all were to come, He'd have to say, I didn't expect this many to take me up on the offer. We're going to have to pick who's going to benefit from the sacrifice of Christ. No. Christ gave Himself as a ransom for all people, young and old, rich and poor, slave and free, male and female. All have found in Christ. All who have come to Christ have found in Him a sacrifice that fully paid for all of their sins. And so God desires that all people to be saved. He's generous. Christ gave His life as a ransom for all. He too is generous. And because of the generosity of the Father and because of the generosity of the Son, Paul says the gospel must be preached to all people and all people ought to be prayed for. This is how Paul ends the section in verse 7 as he speaks about his own commission. He was appointed as a preacher. The word there is a herald, someone who announces, who declares, who proclaims news. And he is sent there as an apostle, that is, one sent who doesn't just make up his message or come on his own authority, but he comes with the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has sent him to proclaim, to herald the message. And he comes as a teacher because people need to come to a knowledge of the truth. And the Apostle Paul has been appointed by God to be the teacher of those who are lost in sins, of those who had their minds darkened and thinking futile because of the Father's love, because of the Son's sacrifice. Paul has been appointed and commissioned to be that ambassador of Christ. And notice that he says he's appointed to be an ambassador not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. You see, in the Old Testament Scriptures, God's revelation of Himself and of His grace in Jesus Christ was limited primarily to the Jews. Sure, there were individuals, Gentiles, who would come to Sharon. There's Rahab, of course. There's Ruth, the Moabitess. There was the commission given to Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh and to proclaim there. But it was mostly, almost exclusively, to the Jews that the gospel went. Of course, there was this longing that all nations would praise the Lord. 
that God's salvation would be shown to the ends of the earth, as we're going to sing from Psalm 98 uh, shortly. But it was primarily to the Jews. And then, with the coming of Jesus Christ, with His ministry, which was even for Jesus, primarily to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, after Christ rose from the dead on the third day, He says to His disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. That is, because of the victory of Christ in His death and resurrection, the gospel is now proclaimed to the ends of the earth. And the Apostle Paul is the one that is commissioned by the exalted Christ to do that very thing as an expression of the kindness of God and His compassion for sinners and the generosity of the work of Jesus Christ. The good news is heralded throughout the nations. That's Paul's commission. And that's our commission too as Christians, as individuals, and as the church of Jesus Christ. I want to read from the Canons of Dort, Article 5, from the second head of doctrine. Listen to this. Moreover, it is the promise of the gospel that whoever believes in Christ crucified shall not perish but have eternal life. This promise, together with the command to repent and believe, ought to be announced and declared without differentiation or discrimination to all nations and people to whom God in His good pleasure sends the gospel. God wants His gospel to be proclaimed among the nations. He wants the Lord Jesus Christ to be held out for sinners and says to all sinners of whatever stripe they are, here is Christ the sacrifice for sinners, the one who gave himself as a ransom for all. Take the Lord Jesus Christ, believe in him, trust in him, and you will never be put to shame. You will know rest for your souls, and you will know the blessings of eternal life. All who come and who take of the water of life freely will never thirst again. That's our commission as well. And our commission flows from the compassionate heart of our gracious God. And so if we're going to be like God, if we're going to share in His passion, then we must share in His compassion. If we're going to share in His passion, that we are going to be concerned about the nations, about our neighbors, our co-workers who live in ignorance and rejection of Christ, we will seek means, we will pray for them, and we will seek opportunities to speak to them and to offer them eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. I came across this quote recently, and I think it's such a helpful thing to understand where we are as a church. This uh, missionary said, the mark of a great church is not its seating capacity, 
but it's sending capacity. The mark of a great church is not its seating capacity, but its sending capacity. That we know how we are aligned with God. If we're able to sing the psalms with gusto, let all the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the nations rejoice and be glad. Praise the Lord, all the earth. And if we have a passion that those still in darkness might come to the light and have eternal life for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ so that in all things he might have the supremacy. So I encourage you to examine your own hearts as I examine mine and see if that universal language of our passage, this longing for all, this provision for all, matches our hearts and that we too wish all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth through faith in Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all. Let us pray together. O Lord, our God and most gracious Father in heaven, it is a sadness and when we think of our lethargy and our carelessness about the lost and about your glory and about the honor of your Son, and we pray that you would awaken within us a holy zeal for your glory, for the honor of your name among the nations, that we would have a compassion for those we work with and those we live with so that uh, we might pray and seek opportunities to speak to them of what God has done in Jesus Christ for sinners. And we pray that you would gladden our hearts with the conversion of the lost, with their being enfolded into Christ's church and uh, growing together with us in the grace and knowledge of our Savior. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.